Alright, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the work that you are doing. Uh, thank you for the chance to get together and, um, and engage with both your word uh, and, uh, and with answering critics and with um, just seeing the glory of your incarnation as you have revealed yourself to us in four-dimensional space-time. Um, and God, the fact that you have, um, you have, on top of it, allowed your son to, uh, to pay the debt of our sin, uh, and, on, and so much more than that has beaten death with this resurrection. Uh, God, I just pray that the glory would go to you. I pray you would give us clear understanding today. I pray that you would give me uh, eloquence of speech. And uh, help me not to move too fast, as I know I can do. And um, I pray that just in our fellowship and in our, um, in our study, that you would be glorified. And I pray that you would prepare us uh, to, uh, to answer uh, people who would have questions or concerns or even um, criticism of, of the truth of your word, especially as it relates to the resurrection. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So um, we spent a little bit of time last week talking about the importance of the resurrection. Um, we talked about several different arguments for it. While we have really sound historical evidence, uh, we talked about the um, we talked about the record from Scripture, why it stands the historical document. We talked about um, even extra biblical evidence that we have of the resurrection. We talked about some philosophical argument, um, and and I'll be totally. You know, to be blunt, I, I think we had a pretty we have a very good argument. Um, I mentioned a couple of books. One more that I wanted to mention that uh, I think is really important. I'm, I was going to bring it today, but there is a, a man called N.T. Wright who has written a book, probably the most comprehensive book on the resurrection. It's simply called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Um, it is a heady piece of material. To read it is, um, it takes a long time. It's not written in such a way that it's exciting. It's just a lot of really good research. Now, a word of caution, um, N.T. Wright has some weird uh, beliefs about the Apostle Paul and things like that. Um, so don't jump on board with everything N.T. Wright has written. But as far as his research on the resurrection, it is phenomenal. And I really, really recommend it if you can pick up that book. It's, it's a beast. It's massive. It's huge. Um, anyway, wanted to mention that one. Of course, I mentioned Gary Habermas, The Resurrection of the Son of God, and, or The Resurrection and, and Future Hope. I'm sorry, it's Gary Habermas, um, who's a good guy, by the way. Um, taking some classes with him, and he's just great. Uh, he also has a book called uh, The Historical Jesus, which is uh, just about the wonderful evidence we have that Jesus, in fact, existed and was resurrected. And There's a whole lot more good stuff, but those are some really good ones to start on. Gary Habermas. H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S. Spelling was not my forte. I can't spell I can't spell easy stuff. Like if you ask me how to spell dessert as opposed to desert, I couldn't tell you. But I can tell you how to spell Friedrich Schleiermacher. Really interesting. So anyway, we're going to deal with critical analysis today. Um, because one thing I want you to be able to do is be able to answer the critics when it comes to things like the resurrection or when it comes to other things. And the first person we're going to deal with is David Hume. Now, David Hume was um, a naturalist philosopher, which means he believed that the natural world is all there is. So, in essence, it's like saying there is no such thing as the supernatural. So that means he doesn't believe in, in any type of God, doesn't believe in angels, doesn't believe in spirit beings of any sort. Um, it's just like it's the natural world, we have science, and that's it. Okay, this is interesting, because David Hume put together this 
what is considered to be the classical argument against miracles. It is this foundational, huge thing that atheists go back to again and again to say miracles can't happen. And essentially, this is what David Hume says. He says, no amount of evidence for a miracle could ever outweigh the fact that most of the time miracles don't occur. So think about this. He's essentially saying that because in most of our day-to-day lives, we don't watch miracles happening. We watch just normal life. You know, we watch, you know, me walking from here to there without teleporting or without, you know, floating, levitating. You know, most of the time, Dan walks about as a normal person. Most of the time, um, I've never seen anybody walk through walls or ascend into heaven, right? And so his, essentially, he says, it's as if we have a, um, one of those uh, weigh scales, you know, that balances. And it's, it's like we put, okay, well, here's one moment where no miracle happens. So we put a little weight on that side. And another moment where no miracle happened. And another. Okay, so the weight is extremely weighted to the non-miracle side. He says, so anytime anybody ever says they saw a miracle, well, it's not going to stand because of all this evidence that we see when, it, when it's not happening. Now, I would be so ecstatic if someone could tell me why this argument is not valid. Anybody have any thoughts initially? Like, why does this not make any sense? Or maybe it does make sense, at least at face value. But what would you maybe say to argue against it? You bring up an, an excellent point. I want to tweak your wording a little bit. Rather than say against, I want to say he, where he... He, he takes action in the natural world to maybe do something a little different. Um, you bring up an excellent point. Because David Hume is trying to argue against miracles pretty much based on their definition. He's saying, well, we've got all this evidence that it doesn't normally happen. Well, the whole point is that it doesn't normally happen. Because a miracle, by its whole point, is to reveal God. God has created this universe that operates with a certain natural order... And then he does miracles in it to show his, himself glorious. Um, they are there to reveal him, which, by the way, this is very key as we define miracle, because I'll be, um, I'll be blunt, uh, I don't believe that we have defined miracle properly in most circumstances. We want to say things like it's a break in natural law or it's some strange thing, and we, we, which isn't okay. We're, we're trying to get somewhere with it. But it's key to the definition that we understand that a miracle is there to reveal God. That's why this whole universe exists. A miracle exists to reveal God. Um, so anyway, David Hume has this argument. Now, I want to kind of parallel his argument with a courtroom analogy. Let's imagine that... Um, who is someone kind that doesn't mind me picking on them? Let's imagine that Tara... Okay, most people... Uh, some of you know Tara Wilms. Very kind, sweet person... No problems. She's just kind as can be. Um, most of us, if, if we were called to trial, and Tara is on trial for murder, okay, um, Tara's been, and, and she calls us as character witnesses. Now, um, I'm not sure how many people are in here today, but let's say she gets 30 of us out, you know, and all of us say, I know Tara. Very kind. Very gentle. Never seen her kill anyone. <laughs> not once. I've known Tara for about a year or so. I've never seen her kill anybody. Okay? And so now, based on David Hume's argument, every person that comes to the uh, testimonial time and says, 
Never seen, never seen her kill anybody, never seen her kill anybody. She's a nice person, never seen her kill anybody. In his argument, everybody who never saw her kill anyone weighs the scale down against anybody who says that she did. Now, interesting thing, most people that see a murder happen, well, aren't, you know, it's not like the whole world comes out for it. You know, it's not like we all get together and say, hey, Karen's going to kill somebody today. Let's watch. Um, that, that doesn't happen. But, but imagine if there was some very compelling evidence. Let's say that, you know, we found the murder weapon, had all of her fingerprints on it. Um, the blood of the victim was on her. I mean, we could just go all, this sounds horrible. Tara doesn't kill people. Um, that's why it's absurd to use her in the argument. Um, there might be some very compelling evidence. Well, if that's brought up in a court of law, we are going to recognize the evidence. We are not going to say, oh, well, we, you know, we don't care that a thousand people never saw her kill anybody. It might be nice for the character thought that maybe we'll just think, okay, so usually she seems very nice. We'll have to think about this. Um, but if the evidence is there, we go where the evidence leads. Now, this is a key phrase. Have to go where the evidence leads. Interesting thing here. David Hume has a um, um, uh, present-day disciple. Uh, David Hume... I want to say 1800s, I'm forgetting the year. He's been a long time ago. Uh, Anthony Flew. Uh, we talked about him a little bit last week. Anthony Flew is, uh, was like the premier atheist of our day. And he was much like the David Hume of present day. And in fact, um, uh, there's a book called In Defense of Miracles where they present David Hume's argument and then Anthony Flew comes by and actually rehashes David Hume's argument in a little bit more modern terms. And he was, this, he was like the David Hume of today. Now, through an argument, or through a, a debate, an ongoing debate with Gary Habermas, who is the man, um, Anthony Flew has become a theist. And it's interesting, the comment that he made is, I have to go where the evidence leads. This is an interesting thing, because by David Hume's understanding, it doesn't matter how much evidence you have for a miracle, it just doesn't count. And I mean, that's essentially what he says. He's like, you can never have enough for it to count. So he doesn't even engage with it. He rejects it, what we call a priori, um, which is a kind of a philosophical term. It, it, it has to do with before the evidence. It's kind of like out of principle, he rejects it. Uh, a posteriori is where you watch the evidence and you make a conclusion. Now, one is not necessarily wrong or the other, but uh, if evidence is available, you need to engage with it. So anyway, let's move on. Um, I think we, we went through all of those pretty well. Any questions on... Um, yeah? The thing that I found interesting, I think I can back up. Let me see. You know what? I don't know how to back up on a Mac. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, uh, most of the time, miracles do not occur because the evidence weighs against blah, blah, blah. What is that? Okay. It's intriguing that he used the phrase most of the time. Why did he say never or all the time? Well, I'm actually just paraphrasing his argument. I don't know that he would say most. But, I mean, he's saying hypothetically if miracles occurred, most of the time they don't, and so that's evidence against it. I don't think he would say most. In fact, I was kind of paraphrasing his argument. I'm pretty sure he words it in a way that's a little bit honestly hard to read for our... Yeah, his, his argument's a little... Which, by the way, uh, the book In Defense of Miracle, which is edited by um, Douglas Gavette and Gary Habermas, really great book that just presents a lot of arguments for miracles. 
Um, but first, it has the arguments against Anthony Flew and Hume, and then the rest of it is um, just the rest of the book is just killing Hume and Flew. It's beautiful. Um, but, um, but that's a really good one for reading that and kind of being able to engage with it. But they do. Yeah. You know, like, for example, uh, the giraffe is just the one I can remember. You know, because of the neck, when it bends down, she drinks water, all the blood just rushed to his brain and put it up. But that doesn't, I mean, technically, the way the body systems work, that's what should happen. You know, if we were a upside down like that, that's what would happen to us. But the giraffe is designed in such a way that that doesn't happen. You know? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the problems we're running into, especially with people who expect miracles, is that they don't see the ones that happen. Well, and see, this is an interesting thing of, um, we come to the table with the presupposition that God exists and that he's in control over his creation. Um, the atheist comes to the table with the understanding that there is no such thing as the supernatural. And, and so they all, we have the same pieces of evidence um, constructed in very different ways. And that's why it's, it requires sometimes that we, we step back and deal with it from a, um, a very broad philosophical point of view to say, okay, let's think of the basics. How can this happen? The laws of thermodynamics say this. How is that possible? Uh, whereas an atheist might sit down and say, well, we don't believe it happened, so let's, ar- let's put together all the evidence we have to prove that it can't or how maybe it doesn't have to have a creator. Um, and so you can, you can spend exorbitant amounts of time doing that. And you can be very intelligent, but if you come to the table with that presupposition, you might never get to where you need to go. And this is why sometimes we get intimidated when we see, hey, you know, there, is, uh, there are really smart people who don't believe in God. Um, well, they are very intelligent. And, and I'll be honest, you can have a very intelligent person argue for something completely ridiculous and, and present a beautiful argument and be, you can be confused, and they can use big words, and they can even use some very tight logic. But if the presupposition is wrong, they're not going to get where they should get. Um, and this is why I believe the truth in it, in it is, is actually quite simple. There is, there's a level of complexity to truth, but, but, but it comes down to either it is or it isn't. And we can argue for that. Side note on this, if I've told this story, forgive me, but um, Ravi Zacharias, good apologist, um, don't agree with him on everything, but a good apologist, he talks about going, he, he was invited to give a guest lecture um, for this philosophy class. And um, the, the, the philosopher, who, or, you know, the teacher who, who brings him in says, well, my students are going to obliterate you. Um, and he says, well, that's not a thrilling proposition, but we'll give it a try here. And so during the class, you know, he gives this presentation for, you know, why he believes in theism, why he believes in Jesus Christ. And this, um, this professor is just trying to argue with him right there. And, and so he, he stops him and he says, listen, let's go to lunch tomorrow. There's a lot of, you know, prideful things going on when you're in front of your class and you feel the need to, whether you're right or wrong, argue, you know, for your point. And he says, let's get together 
tomorrow over lunch and just have a discussion about this. So they're sitting down to lunch, and the, this guy invited some other professors, and the guy's just going nuts. The guy's not touching his food. He's arguing with, with Ravi, and he's saying, here, your problem, Ravi, is that you come from a very Western perspective that believes that truth is either this or that. And he says, no, 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 no. He's like, you need a more Eastern perspective that says that it's both and. And, and we've heard, we hear this a lot. It's a very popular thing right now with postmodern philosophy, with relativism, that something can be both true and not true in the same time, in the same place, in the same way, which breaks the basic law of logic. Okay, which is interesting for a philosophy professor to do that, but they'll do it, being very brilliant. So he's talking more and more, and he keeps coming back to this, you know, you're way too Western, you believe either or, that just doesn't work, it's got to be both and. And so he just talks and talks and talks until he takes a little pause, and Robbie says... You know, and when he keeps asking Robbie, he's like, you're, you, he's like, I want you to agree with me. He's like, I won't. He's like, he's like, well, I want you to agree with me. He's like, I'm just not going to because pretty soon you might. Have, and Robbie even tells me, he's like, you might as well quit talking because you're going to change your mind soon, and um, and I would like for you to not to be as embarrassed as you're going to be. The guy keeps going and all, and so finally he stops. And so Robbie just says, so I must either accept the both and theory of philosophy or. I'm wrong. And the guy says, because he realized that his whole argument was based on either or. And the guy pauses, and he just says, and he takes a bite of food, and, there's a, and he says, the either or does seem to emerge, doesn't it? <laughs> and um, Ravi kind of, you know, jumps on it. He says, you know, I'm from India. He's like, I know about the Eastern mindset. He says, but even us in India, we look both ways before we cross the street because it's either the bus or me not both of us um, I love Ravi Zacharias for that he, uh, he, and, an interesting thing Ravi Zacharias argues for simplicity he doesn't put together these long long you know drawn out arguments he simply says it either is or it's not and that's not that complicated now given that there are complicated arguments that are good but um but some things, it, when it comes to the simple truths of, of reality, it either is or it isn't. Uh, so anyway, that's a whole other thing. And that's why I wanted to just kind of give you some confidence there. None of us are going to be as brilliant, probably, as certain philosophers and scientists. But that doesn't mean that we're wrong just because we're not that astute. Um, we can grasp the truth, argue for it well, and be very confident uh, epistemolo epistemologically, which, by the way, has to do with the study of knowing. And, um, yeah, anyway, side note. So anyway, we're getting back to the resurrection here. We had to get a little bit foundational on some arguments here. Anyway, some critics, when it comes to the resurrection, argue that Jesus did not die, but only swooned and later resurrected. This is an interesting thing, because like we said last week, um, pretty much everybody agrees that the tomb is empty. We have to figure out what happened to Jesus. And then we talked about how his disciples were willing to die for the fact that he was alive after the crucifixion. So they put all these things together, and like we said, an atheistic thinking has to say, we have to explain this somehow. So rather than taking the evidence and saying, wow, this just makes sense, we, they go from their presupposition and they have to say, well, we've got to structure an argument that supports our presupposition. And so they say, well, we know, so, so they just say this thing, well, maybe he just swooned. Okay, well, let's consider a couple of things here. First of all, the Romans were masters at crucifixion. They knew how to kill somebody. Let's just 
be blunt with that, the Romans conquered most of the world. And they knew how to strike terror into people with this whole idea of crucifixion. They knew how to make the agony last as long as possible. And they knew how to make sure the person died as soon as they wanted to. They were masters at it. Um, and so that's, that's the first thing that makes us say, well, you really think the, Ro- the Roman soldiers would have just accidentally not got him killed all the way? Not very likely. Um, they did their job. They wanted to make sure he was dead. Now, here's another interesting thing. Um, when the Romans, uh, you know, when, when, they, when they pierced Jesus' side with the spear, remember it shows that blood and water flows out from the piercing. This is an interesting thing. Because uh, some of you are, are in the medical field. When, when the heart stops, the pericardium, that kind of uh, sac that, that surrounds it, begins to fill with fluid. So, interesting thing, in order for blood and water to flow from his side, he would have had to have already been dead. Or, I should say, already had his heart stopped, at the very least, and for some time, and we generally call that dead. Um, And so, anyway, uh, the blood and water flows out. It's yet another piece of evidence, and it's interesting that people will argue, like, well, you know, we have these... uh, you know, these first century guys, they weren't as you know, scientific as we are, and they don't know these things. And so I'm, I would say, all right, so maybe they didn't know. I would argue that they were much more knowledgeable of, of the human body than we give them credit for. Um, but let's say they didn't know. Let's say they were ignorant that that's what happens. Interesting that that was included there, that the Holy Spirit guided that process, um, that we can now use as evidence to say, yeah, yeah, we win. Anyway, um, Here's another interesting thing. Keep in mind that they put Jesus in a tomb and put a large boulder in front of this tomb that it took at least two guys uh, to, to close the door with. Now, let's imagine that, uh, that Jesus is uh, beaten to the point or, and crucified and, and stabbed in the side and, and, it's so, and he's so feigned that it looks like he's dead. I mean, he's got to be in really bad shape. So they wrap him up in burial clothes, stick him in the grave, Think is he's dead. Everybody's upset. They lay him down there. Somehow, this near-to-death person manages to wriggle free from the wrappings that he is in, uh, stand up, and move this gigantic boulder, okay, and then make his way out. Where um, eventually he gets together with his with his you know his disciples. Um, and all of a sudden, they celebrate with extreme joy. Now, there are a couple problems with this. First of all, how's he going to get out of the wrappings? Second of all, how is he going to move a boulder if he was in perfect health, but let alone dead and resuscitated? This just, no, doesn't happen. This is another interesting thing. Remember, the disciples, they were forgetful um, about the fact that Jesus predicted his resurrection. Um, they were a little unclear on it, at least. And so... Um, so it's kind of difficult. Let's, let's imagine that you're, they're completely dejected, fearful for their lives. Because they, they turn into chickens there for the first few days. Let's be truthful about it. They're, they're, they, get, they got a little frightful. And they're hiding in the upper room. Let's say that your, your savior, your hero, stumbles in, beaten and bruised and bloody. And, um, and you're, you're terrified for your life. He comes in. You might be glad to see him. But you are not going to celebrate and be willing to go and die all of a sudden. You're going to take Jesus to the hospital. Because he is broken and, be- and bleeding and in-, in horrible shape. That's not going to cause the turnaround that takes absolute 
fear-stricken men and turns them into brave saints willing to be martyred. Do you know what explains martyrdom? What explains martyrdom is Romans 6, when it says that we are going to have the same resurrected body that Jesus had. You don't fear death when you know that you are going to have a body that's going to be able to walk through walls and ascend into heaven, that's going to be completely unaffected by sin. That causes the kind of bravery that we see in martyrdom. The kind that says, give me death. You're going to really, you're going to, you're going to threaten me with that. It's because to live is, um, to live is to be away from Christ. To be, or to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Yeah, Jamie. Mm. Which is the ideal. Yeah, absolutely. Which we're going to probably have a look at First Corinthians. We did that last week a little bit. We might look at First Corinthians 15 again if we have time. Um, anyway, um, doesn't explain that turnaround. Uh, interesting also. Recent study of crucifixion evidences that it is impossible to merely swoon on the cross because the victim has to be conscious to push himself up to breathe. A swoon would have resulted in death in a matter of minutes. Interesting thing. Um, there was For a while they were doing some research on um, these safety harnesses for deer stands. You know, these hunters that they put the, hand, the stands up in there and then you know, up in the trees so that they can watch the deer go by and shoot them with maybe an arrow or another projectile. Um, and they decided, well, these guys are pretty far up in the tree. We don't want them falling down, right? So we'll maybe design this like belt or something so that if they fall, they'll hang by the belt and, you know, not plummet to their death. They, they decided that they at least had to rework, I think in some cases didn't have them at all, or, or reworked the, uh, the safety harness issue. Because what would happen if they fell a certain way, it would cause their arms to be kind of like raised up in the air um, and they weren't able to breathe. And it was interesting that they actually suffered some of the similar effects of a crucifixion. Um, they also did this thing. This is kind of quirky. But um, they agreed. They got guys to agree to be, quote, unquote, crucified so they could test the effects. Um, not kill them, but they would like kind of tie them in similar positions, not nail them or anything. And then they would wait to see how long it took them to suffocate. And then as soon as they started seeing them lose the ability to breathe, they'd take them down and made it. Very interesting. I, I forget who was it that does the study on that. Um, but really interesting, what they realize is a person in the position of a crucifixion is uh, compressing their weight on their lungs in such a way that you can't breathe. And so this is what makes the crucifixion so diabolical. In order to breathe, you have to push yourself up on your feet, which are held on with a nail. So you cause excruciating pain on yourself to lift yourself up to breathe. And so you slowly have a choice between either being able to breathe and suffering horrendously or just giving up. And so it's, it's, this, it's this balancing act between your will to live and your ability to endure pain. It's horrible. It's absolutely diabolical in the worst way. Um, which is interesting, though. It makes sense for, let's say that uh, Jesus just swooned on the cross. After a few minutes, he's going to suffocate. He can't just... Faint. Yeah. Mm hmm. Absolutely right. I meant to mention that. That's right. That's right. Which it's it's interesting how we Christ chose probably the most painful form of death possible in any age. Um, very interesting. 
uh, here's another thing. We talked about this a little bit last week. Um, you know what? Pausing for a second. Is everything making sense at this point? Are we moving too fast? We can kind of take a break. We're, we got another however many minutes. Anything, any questions or any thoughts at this point? Yeah. Um, if I didn't believe, and I wouldn't say, well, I'm just, I wouldn't um, Some, I should say, most atheists, well, I should be cautious, a lot of people just don't take Scripture seriously enough to even have an argument against it. Because like we talked about a priori approaches, they just say, well, forget about it. Um, so there's a lot that just don't even engage in the first place because they have such a strong presupposition they don't even think it's worth their while. Um, those that do, uh, you have some liberal scholars, liberal quote-unquote Christians, um, that uh, will bring up these kind of arguments. And then you do have, I mean, the, uh, a well-thought atheist does have to deal with these issues. And so, I mean, like, I mean, human flu... Um, recognized that they had to do something about it. And so your very key players in, in atheistic philosophy were engineering these kind of arguments. Well, they would do more at a foundational level, but um, and there would be probably more people that would come behind them and say, well, okay, so we have to do something with the evidence that they have, and so then that would be engineered. Um, Hume was putting together a much more foundational, like, well, can miracles at all occur, let alone the resurrection? So... I would say most most would not even deal with it. Huh? Oh yeah, for that most of the time we don't see them. That's interesting. See, which I, I've actually changed my view on a few things like that. I'll say I haven't seen it, so I'm going to go on my presupposition for now. But I'll say I'm I'm open to it. You know, I, I doubt it, but um, but I'll I'll give the same credence to. Extracurricular, extraterrestrial people thinking. Whoever, what do, what do we call those people that are in? in but who, who is it? That the people who are into studying that. The people I don't know. There's paranormalists. There we go. I'll give the same. I'll say. All right. I'll give. I'll, I'll allow you. I will put down my a priori notions to engage with you if you will put down yours to engage in mine. Um, and I'll, I'll hear their evidence because I am. I get frustrated often when someone just says, well, I just don't think that. And I'll say, well, I have evidence. Listen to my evidence, and then we can have a discussion. Um, and so I try to do the same thing for others, even though I think there's pretty good evidence that um, they don't exist. But I'll, um, I'll listen to theirs, because um, it's one of those things that, you know, we, we like to say about a lot of things. We're like, the, the nail is in the coffin, that one's just over. And I, I like to say, well, it's, it's, people say it about me, well, listen... Even though I agree with you, I just don't think that they're... Yeah, but I'm with you. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, all right. Did you have yours up there? I would point out that not only atheists develop theories as to the death of Christ, but also religious. I've read, I've read the, the Passover thought by Hugh Schofield, an Orthodox Jew who talks about... It's an elaborate book on how this was all manufactured. Wow. Christ was not Christ. He was not the Son of God. He was just a Jewish boy that decided, hey, if this is when the Messiah is supposed to arrive, I'm going to be the Messiah. He's wounded on the cross. You know, he's, he suffered the, the lashes 
went to the cross, but when the debris was given to him to drink, it had a magic potion in it that allowed him to spoon. And the, the disciples were in on it. That's interesting. Wow. That is interesting. And uh, I would also mention that Jim Bishop's book, The Day Christ Died, Mm-hmm. There's a tremendous detail on the execution and death of Christ. Mm-hmm. That is. It's a very good yeah. reading. It's a very difficult reading for some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, one question I have is that Roman crucifixions are not necessarily preceded by lashing, were they? Um, as I understand, not necessarily. Because the, the whole point of the lashing was. Um, well, well in, in some cases, and also the, the idea there was that. Um, you know, Pilate was trying to, to kind of appease the mob and say, you know, I can't really find anything against this guy, but maybe if I beat him enough, they'll let him go. Because he really, interesting, I don't think he wanted Jesus' blood on his hand. Well, I mean, obviously, he washes his hands of it. Um, that was, that's a very good point, that that was, you know, in addition to the crucifixion itself, he'd already been beaten to what sometimes, often, killed people. Um, interesting, yeah. Hmm. Huh. Right up to the edge. That's interesting. Yeah. Really? That. I wouldn't be surprised if that's what's used. I really wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. 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 I'll call up we'll call up Tim, like, hey, we're gonna need some royalties. Um yeah. interesting how we, we don't have a whole lot of detail there. It's very clear with the whole idea of a glorified body that your body is regenerated in some way, that there's something 
made new, quite literally made new about it, that it's the same flesh, but somehow made better. And it's interesting that like he would be recognizable in that sense, but he would still have the, um, the place of the spear and the, and the nail prints in his hands. Um, and he certainly had a reason for it, but it's, it's very interesting about things like that. Yeah. Speaking of the regeneration, uh, that is what science, at least an aspect of science has said about the shroud of Turin. The reason they can see the image on the shroud is because of the uh, uh, x-ray way in which the regeneration happened in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That's that's the theory. That's um, very interesting stuff about the Shroud of Turin. I don't jump on and say this is absolute evidence, but it is very compelling. Um, It's very interesting too, just the different study that they've done of it, and um, very interesting. And it's not like they had photography back then, so how did they get the image on there? um, There's one theory that Leonardo da Vinci somehow developed some way to do it. But it's a real stretch. Yeah. That's um, well. There was the way the way the burial claws were. There was um, there could be a almost like a mummy type wrapping, and then they would also put that over. Um, and there's some about, you know, we do it this way or that way, but it was like kind of like a blanket that would have been just kind of laid over. Which, an interesting thing, I think um, there are some theological discrepancies in the Passion of the Christ, but I really like the way they handle the resurrection because kind of the, um, uh, the burial clothes just kind of poof, like they just like air out of them. Which, when we read how they're all laid together, the, way, the descriptive terms used, because uh, it talks about them being kind of folded in place. It doesn't seem to be like he just got up and was like, well, I'm going to leave this nice and neat. But it gives the idea, as the wording is used, that it was just kind of like, it was as if he was there and just left, and they just, like a balloon. Well, I was very happy when we were talking about the shroud, the was really Yeah, that's not, because that it doesn't even fit, because there's um, handprints and everything in it. it yeah. There is something else that has to do with that. I forget what it is that is the face wiping thing. Um, we need to move on because we're going to run out of time really quick here. Um, so anyway, um, we talked a little bit last week about how some critics argue that the sightings of Jesus were mere hallucinations. I mentioned this that last week, so we're going to pass over fairly quickly. But um, there was this idea that, well, you know, they see that a lot of people believed. A lot of people, there was so much evidence, so many people that said, hey, we saw him. So then they say, what are we going to do about that? And so they say, well, they hallucinated him. Uh, that makes sense, right? You know, they wanted to see him so bad that they saw him. Well, this causes a problem when we get to like um, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, 8, um, where 500 people at one time see him. Um, and I think we mentioned this, that you don't, you know, when I talked about my friend who had the hallucinations all that. You don't have more than one person hallucinating. And once the person has hallucinated, normally you can say, um, seriously, that's not happening. And he's like, oh yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, but 500 people that you couldn't convince otherwise that all saw the same time thing. It would take a larger miracle um, for, because one of the things in David Hume's argument, he says, well, if there's, if only, if miracles can't, if, if there's no other explanation than a miracle, if there's two different possibilities of miracle, always choose the lesser miracle, which is completely, it shows his, you know, radical presupposition against miracles. 
Um, so we could, we could say that, all right, well, let's take the less miracle. It's less miraculous to think of Jesus actually resurrecting than for 500 people to hallucinate the same thing at the same time. That would require 500 miracles as opposed to one. Um, and then we already talked about how a per- person who is hallucinated can be talked out of it easily. Um, some critics argue that the disciples stole Jesus' body and got everyone to lie about it, uh, see him, him resurrected. We already talked about this last week, too. Uh, but we mentioned this doesn't explain the sudden turnaround from cowardice to boldness in martyrdom. Remember we said that the, the, the disciples were scared. They were hiding in the upper room. What makes them all of a sudden willing to die for something that they know is a lie? This doesn't happen. We already talked about how liars don't make martyrs. If you know it's a lie... You are not willing to die for the lie that you told. Now, sometimes crazy people will make up something crazy and then in their insanity will maybe agree to it. But, um, but once again, for 12 or 11 people to go insane about the same thing, really more than that, there was more than just the apostles, for these other 500 to go insane about the same thing um, just doesn't happen. Anyway, it uh, doesn't fully explain the mass sightings as we said and we talked about the liars don't make martyrs. Why, don't, why would all the remaining apostles be willing to die for something they knew was a lie? Um, yeah, this is a fun one. Some critics argue that Jesus only resurrected spiritually or was just a vision or hologram. That he was just kind of this spirit Jesus. This is what the liberal scholars really like because it just makes them feel a little bit warm and fuzzy inside without actually like having to take any kind of a stand. Which um, You'll note, by the way, in my experience with uh, liberal quote-unquote Christians, because to be honest, if you deny the, res- the bodily resurrection, you're going to hell. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I get a little bit harsh sometimes, but, you know, deny the resurrection, your resurrection is denied. So that means you will burn for eternity. Um, not to be joking about it, it's the truth, and it's sad. Um, yeah? You know, um, I think I always get Mormonism and um, Jehovah's Witnesses confused, to be honest. And I think the Mormons believe that Jesus was recreated. That it wasn't the resurrected Jesus, but God made a new one. That might be the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I forget who that is. But they have some very... I remember reading Mormons say that Jesus resurrected in a Halloween costume. Yeah. Oh, it's all right. But yeah, they, that is a key point. Is they first of all, both of them deny the full humanity or the full hum, divinity of Jesus, and so that ends up requiring that they deny the resurrection in some sense. So, um, but anyway, this is the uh, this is the liberal view tends to be that he just was like a little ghost, like moving about, which doesn't explain the fact that um, the stone was rolled away. Why would you roll away the stone if you're a ghost? You know, now granted, Jesus could walk through walls or he could teleport at least. We saw that happen. Um, so maybe he was going to te- teleport out even in bodily. But why would they roll away the stone? And I, I think it was just to, to be like, check it out, everybody. He's gone. Um, this also doesn't take into account that Jesus had a material body. He ate food and was willing to allow Thomas to touch him, um, which. What's that? Right. He and he and he 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 still has a body, a glorified body. And as we talked about, he we are going to have that same type of body, and that's what the hope is. Um, that's exciting, and not hope of like ooh a hope, but like it's hope because we know it's going to happen. Um, 
So is that making sense? I know these are, we're breezing through some of these because we've already kind of touched on them. Yes. Um, good stuff. Which, by the way, this was, I heard um, one of my professors, Dr. Morrison, talk about uh, a funeral for, I think it was a missionary whose child had died. And um, I hope I don't step on any toes with this, but it, it is the truth. This is a, this is a scriptural thing that we're going to talk about here. And um, somebody comes up to the mother and she's weeping over the casket. And they say, it's just a shell. Don't be sad about that. His real, the real one is, is, you know, in heaven. And she said, but I love those fingers and I love those hands and I want to kiss that head. And she brought about this thing that we, please be cautious, don't tell someone that it is just a shell. It is, now I realize that it's easy to say that. I might make somebody mad today. Um, but that body is going to, that one will be resurrected and made new. Now, in a sense, it will be different, but it is those bones and that flesh that is going to be made new. It is going, that will be in heaven. That is the hope of the resurrection. And if, if you want to have some issue with that, I, I encourage you, go and, and, and study a little bit about the resurrection because our hope is tied to that and see about Jesus' bodily resurrection. What was his like? Ours is going to be just like that. So anyway, moving along. I um, wanted to talk a little bit about the significance of the resurrection here. Um, did somebody have a hand up? Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I had a, um, one of my professors there did have that. He's, um, he was a very, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name. Very, very, very large man. And he would, he would be very blunt. He would be like, I am seriously overweight. What's going to happen in heaven? Um, and, and, you know, I really don't know. But, um, but it appears if, if they made Jesus's, you know, if, if Jesus was recognizable and it appears that maybe his beard was made better, I think we're, we're going to be in the state we were meant to be in. Um, and so whatever it is, is going to be good. So, um, you know, I, I would argue that that doesn't mean that I'm going to have large muscles and a chiseled jaw. Um, I, I would argue that um, I'll just be, you know, in general good health and, you know, I might not even, you know, I don't know that we'll even care then. So, because um, we're going to be so enraptured with glorifying God. And you know what? We will have whatever body we need to glorify God the most. That's what matters. But anyway, um, Let's roll on. Anyway, I wanted to talk about, we've given this argument for the resurrection. Um, if I'm, if I'm, am I skipping over hands or anything? Good. All right. We've given this argument for the resurrection. Um, and then the, the, the thing comes up, and this is when I did my lecture at Oberlin. Uh, somebody says, well, why does it matter? And I'll be, I really was trying to give a good argument. And in, in the moment, I was like, well, it's just, it's the best. Like, how could you not see that this is awesome? Later, I thought of this really great argument that I could have given it. Um, but people ask, well, why is the resurrection so important? I want to take you back to Genesis 3. When, um, and I would like to go and, and reread everything, but we're so close on our time. I would encourage you to go and read Genesis 3. And what happens with the fall of man? Sin, sin enters the world. And what does it say? That if you eat that fruit on that day, you will surely die. So a lot of people get upset. They're like, well, wait a minute. Adam and Eve lived for a long time after that. So how do we explain this death? There was an immediate, and we see it there, an immediate spiritual separation from God. Anytime we see death talked about in Scripture, it is a separation of some sort. And we need to be careful because when we say death, we always want to think of physical death. Death is, in fact, separation. 
Um, and anybody who has experienced a loss of a loved one or a broken relationship with someone very close to you, it is a death. Um, it, it, it breaks your heart. It is death. Um, which, by the way, sometimes we minimize. We're like, oh, the person's not dead. No, but a death occurred here. Um, and any death that occurs is reversed by the resurrection. We're going to talk about that more. But anyway, spiritually, what happens in Genesis 3 is an immediate separation from God, an immediate spiritual death. And they, ha- and, and they realize it immediately. They recognize that they're naked. They hide themselves from God. There are, there are secrets. There are things are bad now. There is a problem. Immediate spiritual death. Eventually, that spiritual death eventually resulted in a physical death. Because separation from God is going to eventually cause problems. And so we had the introduction of, of disease and sickness and, and um, problems on the universe. You know, even the... Because um, these effects even affect the material things of the world. So, I mean, we, hurricanes might have occurred, but not caused the destruction that they cause now. And other things like that lost their key purpose. Just like humanity had a purpose and we were designed to do things. We were designed to glorify God, live in a relationship. All of a sudden, all those things that were good became distorted in the same way with the physical world. Now, so we see a physical separation from the body of an eventual physical death. Um, we see socially a separation from others. Um, you know, if, if your relationship with God, if you don't understand redemption, if you don't understand forgiveness properly, it will, you will have the same problems that you have in your relationship with God will occur in your relationships with other people. And here's something a little bit scary. If you really believe in the resurrection, you should do everything within your power to make sure that every relationship you are in is redeemed. That means you should operate with grace. Just like we, we see that, um, we see in that, that where Jesus talks about the, the guy who owes like a million dollars and somebody owes him 40 and he's forgiven the, the million dollar debt, but then he's strangling the guy over the $40. You have been forgiven for every sin you have ever committed. I don't care what anybody did to you. It is not even close to what you have done to our Father. And if you can't forgive someone for that, I would question whether or not you really believe in the resurrection. I would question whether or not you really believe you have been forgiven. And if you can't operate with forgiveness in your life, if you can't work to redeem relationships, you better question whether or not you have a relationship with God. Okay, now not to just scare everybody, because let's face it, we're not perfect. We are on a process of sanctification. But just recognize, if I'm not doing this, I need to think about why, and maybe I need to change something in my life. Now, this doesn't mean that if you have people that don't like you, that you stink. Um, It matters whether you are doing everything you can. Okay? Because God has done everything. He has given his best to redeem relationships, but you know what? Not everybody wants to have a relationship with God. He doesn't force it. The question is, are you operating with grace and forgiveness in your life? Um, Can you see how the resurrection affects everything? It is because he is resurrected that we can have resurrected relationships. Yeah? But I think it's tough sometimes for people to really find forgiveness. I mean, I don't know if I'm saying this struggle with that because I have a son who, uh, you know, was in high school, came out of his job, somebody was mad at him that day, shot him in the back, and now he was in a yeah. nursing home. She has a real hard time finding forgiveness in her heart for that young man. And I, I can see her point. Yeah. It
And when my kids get mad, I, I usually tell them, we can in our human nature forgive. That's why we have to pray for God to come into our heart and Christ to help us. You say exactly the truth of that because the basic truth of the sanctification process, which read Romans because it's so great. It explains that because it makes it very clear that I don't forgive anybody. I don't do anything right. I am a wicked, vile person. But I have the choice at every decision to either allow the Holy Spirit to have his way or for me to usurp his power and do what I want to do. And I can't forgive. That's, she can't forgive him. But the Holy Spirit can. And if she allows him to, and that's that. sometimes that takes more than just like, oh, I'm just going to do it. it. It's a process. Sanctification is a process. It takes a long time. And I encourage sometimes um, there are hurts and things that people sometimes need to deal with with a counselor. And I um, I encourage that um, sometimes it's helpful to get that kind of... Some, sometimes you need the help of a pastor to say, this is the theological truth. And sometimes you need the help of a counselor to help you weed through the aches and deal with why we have certain presuppositions and what, what it is I'm holding on to and things that we've glossed over. And, and I don't think that because that's big. And I, I struggle with little forgiveness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I can laugh, you know, that's... that's yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I'm going to try to go in the order that I saw the hands. Yeah. It is difficult, and I've dealt with that a little bit, but there is a difference between fruit as a result of the Holy Spirit working and, and the, the prideful, I'm going to do this on my own. And I think that's the classic thing of any religion that doesn't involve the work of Christ. It comes down to, I've got to be a good person. And we see that in Jehovah's Witnesses, we see that in Mormonism. It comes down to, if I'm going to, to get whatever I want out of the afterlife, it's up to me. And while it's doing really great things, the motive is foundationally prideful. And um, that's, a lot of people have a hard time, that is a very natural thing, because I've dealt with that a lot, with like, man, this person has fruit. Um, and that should cause us to say, well, we should be careful about who we label, especially within denominations, who we label as not having it, and who we label as having it. But um, it comes down to pride. And you know what? Our regular old Protestant, Bible-believing churches, we have people who might say the right theology, but operate with that mindset that they, they should, would never say it, but they live as if it's totally up to them. And that's a scary thing. Um, and it needs to be questioned sometimes. Yeah. The Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Yeah. 
And what's the quote? It says that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Oh my goodness, we are almost out of time. Um, Here's an exciting thing. Um, Resurrection is, by definition, the reversal of death. Um, Jesus died and was resurrected. He beat it. Death is slain. It is obliterated. It's absolutely beaten. Um, And this is an exciting thing. Because that means... now. I think we mentioned this. It's as if when Adam sinned, oh, we see this in Romans, the idea of of Jesus being the second Adam. It is as if when Adam sinned, there was this giant rock dropped in the middle of the pond that is the universe. And these ripple effects began. And at first they were kind of, you know, just the initials, but the ripples kept going. They're still going. They're still causing devastation. It's really bad. Jesus, as the second Adam, in his act of obedience to God, is like this giant rock that is reversing the effects of death. Some of them have already been reversed in me. I still have sickness, so it's not done yet. But this, these ripples are, are moving throughout the pond. And that's really good news. And so, I hate being sick. I hate when I eat Chinese food from Hunan King and I throw up. Horrible. But when I am... Releasing the sickness. Um, there are times where I try to remind myself that there will be a day when I won't, I won't feel this again. There will be a day when I don't have a broken heart anymore. Um, anyway, um, yeah, I wish I could spend more time on that, but that's just so huge. Uh, here's a few uh, um, sources that are listed on there for, you know, if you want to look at some more information. Um, and that is it. Are there any questions before we close out tonight for today, this morning? Our time is out. Uh, Feel free to come and talk afterwards. Thank you so much. Very much enjoyed uh, uh, this study that we did. And we'll see you all again soon.